0: This is Bart Peterson and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics. Each week, Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. In this episode, I have with me Fry Wernick, He is a partner in government investigations and white-collar practice at Vincent & Elkins in Washington, D.C. He joined the firm in June 2019 after serving 11 years as a federal prosecutor, including most recently as the assistant chief of the Department of Justice's Criminal Division Fraud Section. Today, we take a deep dive into the weeds on the Hoskins case you consider the procedural history of the Hoskins case, and most interestingly, the jury instructions. It's a fascinating look at how prosecutors prepare cases and what it means for compliance officers in the real world. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And for all you lawyers out there, you're in for an incredible treat today because we're going to really go into the weeds on one of my favorite topics, jury instructions. Um, For those who have not worked on jury instructions, I cannot tell you what you have missed. Uh, The number of hours I spent on jury instructions uh, as a uh, trial lawyer uh, were really beyond belief. But uh, to help us through the jury instructions, and specifically in the Hoskins case, Hoskins case, uh, Fry Wernick, he is the um, most recently the assistant chief of the DOJ's criminal division fraud section where he supervised dozens of FCPA cases. And he's moved over into private practice, landing at Vincent Elkin's Washington, D.C. office. I should also note he's a fellow Texas Longhorn, so hook him and uh, our Alamo Bowl win. So with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Well, it's my pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. So this is one of the most fascinating FCPA cases, not simply because it actually went to trial, but it has one of the most unique procedural histories uh, of cases. So I was wondering if you might start, Fry, with talking about the procedural history that got us to trial.
0: Yeah, it really is. And, you know, as we'll, I'm sure, talk about, this was one of the most uh, watched uh, trials in recent memory. Um, FCPA trials have become more frequently, but still are are fairly rare occurrences, and the Hoskin case had a real spotlight on it, but uh, you know the the lead up to it was um, was very interesting. You had a uh, you know it stemmed from the Alstom case, which was a 2014 corporate resolution, uh, one of the largest uh, corporate resolutions um, still ever. And uh, you know Alstom being a French company um, paying bribes, and there were uh, multiple individuals charged. Um, you know the the most of them, in fact, everyone but Hoskins ultimately pleaded guilty. And he, Hoskins was the holdout. Um, he was initially charged as a co-conspirator in the case. And, um, and I will say, I mean, that was, there was nothing really all too controversial about that, uh, the way it was charged. He was, uh, if you read the FCPA guide uh, that came out in 2012, it was very much understood that, uh, charging someone as a co-conspirator liability uh, could extend to foreign nationals in the way it did here. Um, but, you know, Hoskins challenged that, uh, you know, the byproduct of having so few trials over the decades that the FCPA has been in place is you haven't had as much litigation and narrowing and refining of the statute as you do with other laws. And uh, so this was aptly challenged by the defense here. And the Second Circuit came down with an opinion, it took quite a bit of time actually to issue the opinion. I think over a year lapsed from the time it was argued, from the time the Second Circuit ultimately handed down the opinion saying that, uh, no, Hoskins cannot be charged as a co-conspirator. He was not among the specifically enumerated categories of defendants under the FCPA. Um, uh, but he could be charged as an agent of a domestic concern or within the territorial jurisdictional reach under uh, 78, uh, 15 U.S.C., 78 DD3. So the DD2 or DD3 opportunities were there. If, um, and you know, apt here would be the agent of a domestic concern under uh, 15 USC 78 DD2. Um, and that was ultimately the basis of the FCPA charges against him. You know, he also was charged with money laundering counts, and, and we'll get to that, um, uh, which are not subject to the same statutory restrictions. But for the FCPA purpose and for the programmatic, uh, purpose of, of charging FCPA cases, uh, by the FCPA unit, uh, that was, that was really significant limitation, um, and, uh, um, changed the way that the case could be, uh, tried.
1: to to trial this year. And uh, even after the Second Circuit opinion, there was, uh, I don't want to say controversy, but at least a debate around the specific jury instructions. And the Department of Justice, uh, uh, I couldn't tell from the written record if it was a joint agreed jury instruction or both sides submitted uh, their proposed jury instructions and the court uh, either selected one or crafted their own instruction. But we concluded with a, a jury instruction um that I would really like to read uh, which gave the three elements that the prosecution had to establish uh, number 1 a manifestation by the principal that the agent will act for it number 2 the acceptance by the agent of the undertaking and number 3 an understanding between the agent and the principal that the principal will be in control of the undertaking uh did first of all did i get that procedural history right to how we got to that specific instruction and have there been others uh, other either either district courts or circuits which have looked at this issue?
0: You know, it's a really interesting jury instruction, like you just said. And it's interesting, I think, uh, for one real uh, real important reason. You know, Hoskins wasn't the first uh, case to be tried uh, under the theory of an agent of a domestic concern after the Second Circuit opinion. Um, of course, it's the, the named Hoskins, so people follow it. But Ho was actually the first one, uh, the Ho case in SDNY in 2018. And I did, uh, you know, if you look at the jury instructions in Ho, which which follow a series of jury instructions that are similar to that um, with agent uh, of a domestic concern um, case law, I think Lambert uh, also, um, the, the language in the instruction is uh, an agent is a person who by express or implicit agreement with another person or entity called the principal undertakes to represent on behalf of the principal and performing the service for the principal. And then it goes on, joint participation in a partnership or joint venture, whether formal or informal, suffices to make each partner or joint venture an agent of the others, a broader understanding of agency and doesn't really include the control element. And if you actually look at the history of the Ho case, the government very much fought the idea that you had to show control. Um, My understanding was this was an intentional decision by the government in the Hoskins case, um, to actually be open to the idea of, uh, control as part of the instruction. Um, and, and that's significant. You know, this was an area that had a real spotlight on it. Um, and I think a really savvy move on the part of the trial team, um, if I'm right about that, uh, because, it really, uh, you're taking a narrower, more defense-friendly instruction that everyone knows is going to be up on appeal again. And it really tells the Second Circuit, look, we didn't go with a more expansive uh, um, definition that's been applied in other cases. We actually went with a narrower instruction, um, uh, one more favorable to the defense. And the jury still uh, agreed with the government that it could show uh, that the principal was in control of the undertaking, uh, that Hoskins was, was doing. And so, um, you know, look, you had extraordinarily, I, mean, I will say, you know, I know that the prosecutors involved and, you know, Dan Kahn, Lorinda Laurier are among the most talented prosecutors, uh, out there. And, you know, they have a wealth of experience. They certainly know the FCPA up and down. And, um, I have no doubt, uh, that they were able to, uh, you know, really be thoughtful on how they approach this. And, um, you know, and they're savvy in the way that uh, they can think through this and also steps ahead. If you get the conviction, they're really trying to put in the best position to preserve that conviction. So, uh, you know, my understanding is that was uh, likely the thought process here. And it's not surprising given what I know about uh, this trial team and, and their capability.
1: You really pointed up something I wanted to emphasize, which is uh, the multi level nature of any decision that you make in trial. Uh, starting with your uh, jury charge and then your jury instructions, because you do have to consider uh, number one, what's going to be the impact if it does go up on appeal. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we will have an appeal on this one. But also, uh, I'm always fascinated because your jury instructions lead you, in many ways, to your presentation of the evidence. So it's also with an eye towards the jury, because not only is the jury going to, have to read the jury instructions, but you as a prosecutor or even the defense lawyer, if it's your instruction, uh, you have to tie your evidence to that instruction. So, in closing, you can say, uh, we were required to show control. Here's how we showed control. One, two, three, four, five. And so, I was really interested and intrigued, frankly, that, um, as you said, they were thinking so many steps ahead, uh, the prosecutors in this case, and by having the more narrowly drawn, uh, I think, uh, jury instruction was act. Actually, a tactically a brilliant step because you're absolutely right. The court, any uh, any appellate court, uh, will look at this uh, in that light, particularly with the facts now that they have tied to – that the jury found, not the facts presented, but the facts the jury found, which tied to the issue of control.
0: Well, you know, they must. You're first of all, Tom, you know as well as anyone, um, and you're exactly right. I mean, the jury instructions—that's the roadmap, and it's it's you have to tie the evidence to those instructions, and so you're thinking through that from the time you charge the case through the time you are putting on the evidence and, and asking, you know, eliciting testimony from the witnesses putting in the documents always with a mind of how do I point, bring that back to the elements that the jury's going to be charged uh, to consider. And so, um, you know, all I can think is uh, number one, you know, you have a, you have a skeptical second circuit uh, who's already weighed in on this. And so uh, the trial team here must have very good comfort that they can Get in uh, to the control element here and, um, and that they'd be able to put in the testimony and the documents to really prove that up. And, you know, I wasn't at the trial here, but I think, uh, um, like I said, they don't make that decision to go in that direction if they're not confident they can prove that element at trial. And, um, you know, clearly the jury agreed took less than a day or about a day to, to return a verdict on a fairly lengthy FCPA trial. So, um, you know, again, kudos to the team there for, for being able to 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 execute it in the way they did,
1: so the uh, the evidence that uh, was presented in trial, and, and neither one of us were present. Uh, we have both read uh, some summaries, but the thing that intrigued me was that the evidence actually followed in many ways what happens in reality in a corporation. There can be a legal structure uh, uh, set up at an organizational chart, but in many ways, it's the informal structure in a company. Uh, Which dictates how it's run. And so that you can have a U.S. subsidiary actually in control of a foreign national outside of the United States uh, directing uh, a specific business process or or business transaction uh, that uh, may not uh, seem self evident initially by reviewing a corporate structure. And it seemed to me that the prosecution was able to present evidence, which factual evidence, which the jury accepted. Uh, control was present.
0: Yeah, you know, it was um I, I agree. Look, I didn't sit on the trial and I have had work to do, so I have not been reading through the transcripts. But um you know, but based on the public reporting, uh, you know, that that seems to be right. I mean look, what we do know is that Hoskins was the uh executive at the French parent company, never stepped foot in the United States, um and uh was charged though with being the agent of the US subsidiary. And as you said, it's not self-evident that that could be the case. But you're right. I mean, companies operate more fluidly than that. And certainly, um, you know, what I understand came out of trial was multiple witnesses talking about how they relied on Hoskins for support to execute the scheme, uh, you know, the the bribery scheme in Indonesia uh, that was charged. um, You know, this was a difficult case for the government. Uh, you, You had to not only show the agency aspect of this. But, you know, taking another step back, and this goes away from jury instructions, but really much more to jury appeal. Um, You have a person that's never stepped foot in the United States and he's being charged in a U.S. courtroom um, with a fairly obscure statute. Um, And how do you get the jury to care about that? That's always one of the biggest, most difficult things uh, as a prosecutor bringing these cases. How do you get a jury to care about what what some foreigner was doing in a faraway, distant land? And why are they hearing about it in a U.S. courtroom? And, you know, this isn't something that um, you're trained on. You are trained on it. But this isn't something that really gets as much attention as it deserves. It is um, that that's where you kind of separate the cream from the, uh, the chaff here. And you've got a really uh, effective presentation, at trial to get the jury to care about that piece of it. Um, again, separate and apart from, from the rest of it. Now, getting back to the agency piece and the, inst- and the instructions, You know, you have evidence, what I understand is, you know, he approved the scheme, but that doesn't necessarily go to agency. Uh, But the support feature does, and and perhaps there was documentation and other testimony that we didn't read about that will also go in and and support this as well uh, to to meet that element uh, that the government had to show.
1: If I could turn um, uh, now to a little bit different focus, because I was very intrigued at the uh, ACI National Conference, Assistant Attorney General Brian Benchkowski talked about this case, and he talked about the way the Department of Justice would analyze the agency and, more importantly, the control question uh, going forward. And one of the key elements I drew from his talk was that this will be an incredibly fact-specific analysis for each case, and that each case will stand on its own facts, and certainly the department will do its own analysis. It will be uh, open to other analysis or, you know, counter arguments by defense counsel uh, on these points, but that uh, there will be sort of no one agency fits all for foreign subsidiaries or U.S. subsidiaries of foreign companies. Would that be a fair assessment of uh, uh, Attorney, Assistant Attorney General Benchakowski's remarks?
0: I mean, I think that's right. I also don't think it's a sea change from how, uh, you know, the, the, the FCPA unit always handled these things. I mean, you're going to take them on a Case by case basis, and and try to see whether or not the facts will will meet um, an agency theory. You know, I mean, notably, if you look at how the cases have been charged since the Second Circuit came down with Hoskins, um, you you did make you see an intentional effort uh, to charge agency theories of liability. Um, at at, at worst, as an alternative uh, theory, um, to make sure that you could uh, you know meet the The stricter requirements. That wasn't done willy-nilly. That was done because you took first a look at the evidence and and said, well, yes, you can show agency. So, um, you know, what is interesting is with the new Hoskins jury instructions, um, it is likely to be that those will be the new norm. And so you do have to look at those three elements we discussed um, and say, can we show those elements to meet that agent definition? Um, And before... Hoskins, I think people were looking at Ho as uh, whether you can meet those elements. So you do have a, a bit of a higher bar, uh, practically speaking, um, but uh, it's not one that's in any way insurmountable, and, um, and I don't disagree with uh, the AAG here that uh, the government is going to take this on a case-by-case basis.
1: Do you see this decision, uh, or the, rather the verdict, uh, and trial court's decision to date as opening up uh, perhaps wider prosecutions, or do you think we'll we'll need some additional clarification and then add on the case by case analysis that you just talked about?
0: Well, I think people will be eagerly awaiting the Second Circuit's revisiting of this question on appeal. Um, you know whether they are comfortable uh, with the instructions as they were and with the evidence. Uh, that there was sufficient evidence to meet those elements. Um, and if so, then um, I, I think you can certainly expect to see continued uh, prosecutions of foreign nationals in this way. Um, you know, the, it had had the jury reached a different conclusion here, um, that could certainly have changed the approach of the government uh, to take perhaps a more um, uh, modest or narrower approach to how to, to, to bring these cases um, that being said, you know, the reality is foreign nationals in these FCPA type of cases almost always can be charged with money laundering, uh, wire fraud and other accounts that aren't limited uh, the way the FCPA is in the Second Circuit. So um, whether a criminal defendant, a foreign national defendant um, will be charged with FCPA might be one thing, but they could certainly still be charged with money laundering, even with an FCPA SUA, underlying conduct being the FCPA violation, uh, and wire fraud as well. I mean, these are always, you know, these schemes by their very nature are concealed in how the money is moved. Um, They're international. So, you know, the uh, International Promotional Money Laundering Statute, 18 USC 1956 A2A, uh, the um, conspiracy to commit money laundering, um, and, uh, you know, 1956 and 1957 are. Fertile ground for bringing cases against foreign nationals like this, irrespective of the ability to bring the FCPA case. But uh, your point is, should we expect further tailoring by the Second Circuit and how is the government going to move forward? I don't think we'll see, uh, I don't think we're going to see an expansion uh, beyond what's happening now. Uh, But it has been um, a fairly expansive uh, use of the FCPA. Thus far, and um, at least at this stage, is one supported by uh, the law and the evidence.
1: For those who may not understand the appellate process, uh, Fry, I was wondering if you could give a few words about how internally that works in, in the Justice Department. Is there an appellate section? Uh, if there is an appeal of this case, will it go to that section? Uh, will drafts be largely written by the uh, fraud? Uh, section uh, fraud unit or um, the FCPA unit, I should say. Uh, could you just give a few words on how that process might work?
0: The, the, there is an appellate section uh, within the Department of Justice, and that section oftentimes will will take the appeals themselves. In a case like this, there's no doubt the fraud section uh, trial attorneys um, are going to be heavily involved. Um, first of all, they're they're all very capable uh, at briefing, um, themselves. It's not to say that they'll argue the case in the second circuit, though they could, um, you know, this, uh, you know, what, we also have the dynamic, of course, they team up with U.S. Attorney's offices, each of whom also have their own appellate section, um, and U.S. Attorney's offices differ as to who handles the appeals. Um, you know, SDNY is one that is, uh, well known for the fact that their trial attorneys frequently will argue there's very same cases on the second circuit. I came from an office where you in the U S attorney's office in DC, where you typically handed those off. Uh, and when you handled appeals, it wasn't necessarily your case, although it could be. So there is some, there is some uh, flexibility in the approach. Um, my hunch is that the fraud section and the appellate section would be very engaged together in this particular case, um, in responding to the appeal and, um, and, and most likely someone from the appellate section would argue this one, um, but, it, but it could very well be uh, a fraud section attorney if they wanted to, could do that as well. That certainly happened in the past. Or, or the, US, the AUSA here should not uh, uh, neglect to mention uh, Dan Novick, who also uh, tried the case.
1: So, Brian, unfortunately we're near the end of our time, but this has been a fascinating exploration, uh, literally into the weeds of uh, jury instructions in the Hoskins case, but it also, I hope, illustrates the for me the greater point that jury, uh, jury instructions and charging documents are really the foundation of everything that happens thereafter. So thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing the conversation.
0: No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report appears weekly on Monday of each week. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next week on the FCPA Compliance Report.